Well, it's good to be back together tonight. Uh, Sorry about last Wednesday night. We thought that there was a security concern here. We found out later on uh, who that was. And if we had known that beforehand, we may not have canceled. We may have. But we are not going to risk anyone's life or security with something like that. So make sure you pay attention to those texts that go out because sometimes events can happen like that. We've had a number of uh, uh, some homeless people who have come up here in this property in the last few months. It has been some escalation of that. I was talking to a secretary of another church right down the road here near Highway 1 in Lowe's who was telling me the very same thing. They've had an escalation of activity around their churches. Uh, some of them have been concerning Uh, People coming into their churches, wanting to get inside their churches in the middle of the day. It used to be a day you could do that, would be no problem. It's not the way it is anymore. So you have to be really concerned about that. So just keep that in your mind. Pray for that also. Okay, so let's open our Bibles tonight back to Romans 11. Romans 11. And uh, we're going to uh, pick up there. But if you'll just put your finger there in Romans 11 when you get there, because we will go there in just a few moments. I want to begin tonight by reading a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So Romans 11, but also now to begin with Deuteronomy chapter 30 tonight. And we are continuing our study on the topic of the future of Israel. Has God cast away his people? But more specifically tonight, we're going to zero in on the topic of what about the land What about the land that was promised to Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 6. The word of God says, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things shall come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you have been driven out to the furthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Verse 6 sounds very familiar to us of the words of the new covenant given to us in Jeremiah. This is a prophetic announcement given to us by Moses to the people of Israel about God's continuing covenant relationship with that nation, Israel. And in fact, it is a long-scoped prophecy, meaning it carries all the way through their history, including the blessings and the cursings. Their willing to obey the law would allow them to live in the land, Their disobedience to God would allow them to be taken out of the land and to be cursed as a result of it. And even sometimes as a result of their disobedience to God and the Mosaic Covenant, they would experience curses themselves from their disobedience, but the land itself would be cursed until they were brought back into the land in obedience. This prophecy takes us from the time of Moses early on as they begin to occupy the promised land, and then it moves us all the way into the future where we will find them circumcised of heart by the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah. Now that takes us to our passage over in Romans chapter 11 because we're going to spend a little time tonight, and again, like last time I believe it was, we, we read a number of passages, and we're going to be reading a number of those again. We're going to be going through a number of passages that address the topic of the land. And the reason why I'm going to do this is because often it is said that because God has fulfilled his promises in Christ and that God has fulfilled his 
promises in the church that Israel has no purpose in the future and that Israel, in some cases, not all believe this, but some believe that Israel has no future at all and that their nation as it exists today is just another pagan nation over in the Middle East. And others would also tell us as a result of that kind of approach to the scripture is that the land has no significance whatsoever. That the land is fulfilled in Christ or the land is fulfilled in the promise that you and I will inherit the world. So is that indeed what the Bible teaches us? Is there, is, is there no significance at all to the land that God had promised Israel? Is this something that he promised and then later on was removed or was diminished or was fulfilled in some way other than physical property in the Middle East? When you come to the topic of the future of Israel in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 29 specifically, there are passages in there that seem to indicate to us that there is a future restoration of Israel. Now, there are those who would tell us that that future restoration is only a spiritual restoration, that they are saved and made part of the church, and that that is all that is meant by that all Israel will be saved in verse 26. But is that indeed all that Paul has in mind here, when in fact the entire point of Romans chapter 9 through 11 is to discuss what God has done and is doing with unbelieving, Christ-rejecting nation of Israel. Is Paul dealing with more? So it is no doubt, and we all know this, there's no doubt that theologians and pastors throughout the centuries have understood the significance of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the future of Israel. And there are many. Uh, there are many prophetic statements in the Old Testament that talk about Israel and its future restoration and its future fulfillment in embracing the Messiah and believing in Christ as the Savior. This is not something that's just believed by the Old Testament prophets. In fact, historically speaking, men of God throughout history have believed and affirmed this. Men like Jonathan Edwards, uh, John Calvin, Charles Hodge, J.C. Ryle were classic premillennial views of Romans 11. Now that doesn't mean they held premillennialism, but they had a premillennial look and view of Romans chapter 11. They considered that there would be, based on Romans 11, a future salvation or a future restoration of the Jewish people of Israel. But not all of them believed that there was a future restoration in their land necessarily. There was no way to escape, according to some scholarship, there's no way to escape the clear conclusion of Romans chapter 11 that God clearly will indeed restore the people of Israel to salvation. But some have chosen to say it has nothing to do with their promise of the land. Martin Lloyd-Jones, no small lightweight to say the least, was one of those who did see, in fact, a future restoration of Israel in the sense of their salvation. He saw Romans chapter 11 as indeed one of those passages that does teach that in the latter times there would be a great ingathering of Jewish people to the Messiah. His own words were interesting, especially after the events of 1967. In 1967, with the Six-Day War and the recapturing of Jerusalem by the Jewish people, it sparked a lot of interest among even those who were not premillennial. Martin Lloyd-Jones said to me, and I quote this, to me, 1967, the year that the Jews occupied all of Jerusalem was very crucial. I am equally impressed by Romans 11, which speaks of a great spiritual return among the Jews before the end of time. I have a feeling, he says, that we are in the period of the end. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones. R.C. Sproul, also commenting on the Six-Day War that occurred in 1967 in Jerusalem, said, I don't know what the significance of all of this is, but I will tell you this, we should be watching very carefully. He went on to say, Paul knew that the full restoration, this is R.C. speaking, Paul knew that the full restoration of the ethnic Israel lay further in the future as the final resurrection drew closer. Robert Murray McShane, which many of us are familiar with, was a minister in the Church of Scotland. 
he had a tremendous missionary zeal for the people of Israel, the Jewish people specifically. He was known for his piety and his reading of Scripture, and he was highly praised by the Scottish Presbyterians. He said this, Now the simple question for each of us is, and for our beloved church, should we not share with God his peculiar affection for Israel? If we are filled with the Spirit of God, should we not love as he loves? In other words, if God loves Israel and has loved Israel, should we not do the same? He went on to say, you say God has cast away, you say God has cast them, that is the Jewish people off. Has God cast away his people which he foreknew? God forbid. He said, that is Murray McShane says, the whole Bible contradicts such an idea. He says, it is true that Israel is given for a brief moment into the hand of their enemies, but it is also just as true that they are still, still clearly beloved of God. Shouldn't we give them the same place in our hearts which God has given to them? Horatius Bonar, which I quoted, I believe, the last time, said this, and I believe that it is not possible to enter into God's mind without regarding the destiny of man and regarding the destiny of man without taking into our key consideration what his mind is concerning the ancient nation of Israel. That nation whose history so far from being ended or nearly ended is only about to begin. Horatius went on to say, I believe that God's purpose regarding our world can only be understood by understanding God's purpose for Israel. I believe in Israel's restoration to their land and their conversion to their Messiah. I accept as future certainty that the Jewish people will be gathered to their ancient homeland and that ultimately all Israel will be saved. He went on to say, as I believe in Israel's present disgrace, so I also believe in the nation's coming glory and preeminence. There was also another author and theologian and pastor. Uh, his name, Wilhelmus Brackel, in 1635, he lived from 1635 to 1711. He was a reformer of the Netherlands. And he's known best for writing a four-volume set, listen to this, a four-volume set on the Christian's reasonable service he wrote four books on Romans 12.1. Four books on Romans 12.1. You think I'm slow. He was influenced tremendously from the Puritans. And you can see that in his own writings because of how long he writes on anything. He represented, he represented the Reformed tradition he majored on systematic and theological doctrines throughout the Bible and trying to grapple with the mind of God in Romans. He published that book, book in uh, uh, the 1700s entitled The Christian's Reasonable Service. And he said this, there will most certainly be a restoration of the nation Israel, not only in a spiritual sense, but also in a physical sense. Now, the reason why I read these things to you is not to bore you with the details of what some historical theologian or reformer thought, but I want you to understand that this has not been something that has been uh, not understood over the history of the church. In fact, there have been ma many very notable scholars and theologians and pastors in the Word of God who have seen the very same thing that we're talking about tonight that Israel indeed has a future more than just, listen to this, more than just a spiritual salvation in the future. That many of them see a future restoration of the people themselves in their land, occupying the geographical boundaries that God has promised to them long ago, specifically in Genesis chapter 15. None other than Jonathan Edwards the one who is often quoted to be a post-millennial, regarded the conversion of the Jewish people in the nation Israel as something that would take place. In fact, he talked about the preservation of the people of God, specifically the Jewish people, as a miracle 
that you could have a people like Israel that had been banished from their land for, as he would say at his time, 1,600 years, and yet still be preserved to this day. And I don't know if you've ever looked into this, but whenever Israel came back into their land after the Holocaust, and some believe that the Holocaust was the birth pains that brought them back into the land because God used that to create sympathy for the people of Israel to have a place to occupy. But also at that time, they were not as all familiar with their Hebrew language, and there was one particular man who was going to bring the Hebrew language back to his people. And now you're living in 1948, and there's a lot of things that the Hebrew language doesn't have words for. Like today, there's the word computer, or the word telephone, or words that we're familiar with that they didn't even have an understanding of. There was no Hebrew words for many of the words in 1948. So he created them so that the people of Israel could speak their language in their land and occupy the land that God had given to them. Jonathan Edwards talks about the miracle of God's preservation regarding the people of Israel. And he says this, nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews in the 11th chapter of Romans. And there are many passages of the Old Testament that can't be interpreted in any other sense. Yay, Jonathan. I agree. Besides the prophecies of the calling of the Jews, we have a remarkable seal of the fulfillment of the great evidence of God's providence by the thing that is a continual miracle, he says. That is the preserving of them as a distinct nation when such a dispersed condition had occurred for 1,600 years. And when he was writing this, they weren't back in their land yet. The world, he says, affords nothing else like it. A remarkable hand of providence. When they shall be called, then shall that ancient people that were alone God's people for so long a time be God's people again, never to be rejected again. One fold with the Gentiles. And then also shall the remains of the ten tribes, wherever they are, and though they have been rejected much longer than the other two tribes, be brought into their brethren, the Jews. The prophecies of Hosea especially seem to be holding forth here and that in the future glorious times of the church, both Judah and Ephraim, or Judah and the ten tribes, shall be brought together and shall be united as one people as they formerly were under David and Solomon. So clearly, Jonathan Edwards saw a future restoration of Israel in some form or fashion and was markedly uh, amazed at the miracle of God's preservation of these people. Now, before we look any further at this tonight, I want to remind you of a verse. I want you to turn to Romans 11 for a moment. Romans 11, verse 28. And I want you to note this with me. Because this is so very important of a verse. Romans chapter 11, verse 28 and verse 29. And we'll get into this a little more later, but Romans 11, 28 and 29. Concerning the gospel, they, that is unbelieving Israel, are enemies for your sake. So concerning the gospel, they're enemies. But concerning election, they, that is unbelieving Israel, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, the word beloved there has the idea like it does for us. We're called the beloved. Christ is called the beloved. And that is a synonym for the chosen. You are beloved. You are loved beforehand. You are the ones who were foreknown, as he says early on in the same chapter. Concerning the gospel, right now, he says, they're enemies. Oh, yeah, they look hostile. They hate Christ. They don't believe him to be Messiah. I even heard one rabbi, I listened to a video this past week, who said that he believes that Jesus is a liar. This is a rabbi in uh, Israel. He believes Jesus is a liar because he looks at the temple mount that they call the temple mount, it says, Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. There's tons of stones on top of each other. Jesus is a liar. They don't believe in Messiah. They don't believe in Christ. They reject the Jesus as their 
fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But even though they are enemies of the gospel, they are still, the Bible says here, beloved of God. Beloved of God. But notice the text, verse 28, here's key, for the sake of the fathers. For the sake of the fathers. What does he mean by that? Why does he even bring that up? Who's the fathers? Well, we know who they are. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the fathers. Well, why are they beloved for the sake of their fathers? Because God made specific, specific, specific promises to the fathers. They're beloved because God said he would do something. They're loved of God and continue to be loved of God because God said he would give them something. But then notice verse 29. For the gifts and the callings are irrevocable. The gifts and the callings are irrevocable. Folks, if what I'm about to tell you tonight is not true, if Israel doesn't have a future in their land, then this verse is not true. Because God gave it to them. It's a gift. He says the gifts and the callings of God. Now the callings of God obviously refer to salvific callings. And not only that, but also the calling of God on the nation itself. But these things, God didn't come along to Israel and say, you know what? I chose you to be the nation through whom I would bring the Messiah. But you know what? Halfway through, you messed up. You disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant. And now you haven't kept the Sabbath for 70 years. I'm throwing you into captivity. And it's over with. I, I'm going to go find me another nation to bring the Messiah. No, he didn't do that. His callings are irrevocable. Even through the whole series of the history of Israel, we all know they disobeyed. They disobeyed. They were thrown out of their land. They were held cap in captivity. And then they were restored back to their land. Their temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed and the... Then the temple was rebuilt and the walls were rebuilt. It seemed to be over and over and over again. Even Hosea the prophet pictured Israel as a prostitute who literally sold herself on the streets to all the idolaters and all the pagan nations. And yet God still calls her beloved, brings her back over and over again. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. When God makes a promise... He keeps his promise. When God gives something, he gives it. Whenever he calls, he calls. And so when I think about this, I think about the land. The reason why I think about it, and you'll see some of this tonight, when you read the Old Testament, this comes up over and over and over and over again. The land, the land, the land, the land is going to be restored to the land. Do you know what's happening over in Israel right now? Do you know why they're doing what they're doing over there right now? The land. It's the land. Now, I know that they hate the Jews. I know Hamas hates Jews. If you're a Jew, if they could find you anywhere, they would kill you. There's no doubt about that. But they call Israel the occupation. Why are they called the occupation? Because they believe, that is the Hamas, the Palestinians believe, that's their land. God says, no, it's their land, Israel's land. And Israel believes, they got their Old Testament, they still read the Old Testament prophets, they believe it's their land. Huh? There, there's a lot of jealousy there, you bet there is, yes. But there's more than that, there's clear hatred. And as we'll see soon where all that comes from in Genesis and the, the fighting amongst them from Isaac and Ishmael. But let's talk about that a little bit tonight. Uh, does the land matter or does it not matter? Does it, do we even see it fulfilled in the future or is it just something to be spiritually fulfilled in Christ and spiritually fulfilled in the church? Now, when you look back at Romans 11, verse uh, 16 and 17, if you remember this, it's talking about how Israel's first original start was the first fruit, which was holy, and the lump was also holy. And then the, uh, it talks about the root is holy, and so are the branches. In verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and, them, and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Now, I don't want to be 
too technical and try to read into this more than what's here. Obviously, obviously there's a simple illustration of the olive tree and the root, which I believe to be the father's, based upon its context. I heard someone this past week tell me that the root is Jesus. That's an insertion into the text that has nothing to do with the text. I'm not denying Jesus is part of everything. He's, he's the Lord. He's part of everything. But in this text, the root is the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's for the sake of the fathers that they are beloved. And through Abraham comes the descendants. And through Abraham comes the blessing. And through Abraham comes the Messiah. And through Abraham comes all the promises and the covenants and the oracles and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant and all of that and the new covenant. And when he tells us in verse 17, there's a fatness of the olive tree. I wonder what the fatness is. And like I say, you're not going to be able to have a Bible verse you're going to go to. And it says, this is the fatness of the olive tree. There's not one there. But you can't extrapolate off of what the history of Israel is, and especially the covenants that God gave through the fathers, and understand what the fatness would be. It would be all the blessings associated with being attached to the olive tree. If you want to, be benef if you want to benefit from the root and get the fatness that comes up through the root, then you are attached to the tree. Is that not true? And the fatness would no doubt clearly refer to all the blessings that come as a result of being attached to that tree. And here you have, I'm sure, the references to all the things that God gave to Israel. Even those who believe in a future spiritual fulfillment of these things only would agree that we are beneficiaries of the fatness of the olive tree, spiritually speaking even. But I think that Paul has more in mind. Remember, whenever he's talking in Romans 9, he identifies Israel as those to whom presently, even in their unbelieving state, belong the promises and the covenants and the laws and so forth. And then he asks the questions in Romans 11.1, 1, has God cast away his people Israel? He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking in physical terms now not spiritual terms. I identify with my people. They are my race. They are my, they are my Jewish people. And uh, so the fatness here would include all of those promises that come down through, through the lineage of Israel, which would be the promises, the covenants, salvation, the blessings. But there's one other one, the land, the land. Now, you and I might not think too big of that, but to an Israelite, to a Jew, the land is everything to them. If you're an Israelite, you identify with the land. The land and the people of Israel are so closely linked together, if you curse one, you curse the other. If you bless one, you bless the other. It's all about their land that God had given to them. So... Let's talk about that a little bit, okay? Let's go back to a passage in Genesis. If you can follow with me, uh, this is going to be this is going to be uh, elementary level stuff, but it's going to help you, I'm sure, to think about it. We're going to start in Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Now, remember, Abraham called Abram here has been called out by God. He's coming out of a pagan nation, okay? And God's going to make him a nation. In Genesis 12, 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, verse 1 now, Genesis 12, 1, Get out of your country, leave your family, and from your father's house, here it is, to a land, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and, I will, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice in these verses, if you will, verse 2 and 3 specifically, it says, you can read it in verse 1 also, to the land I will show you, verse 2, I will make you, I will bless you, verse 3, I will bless those, I will curse him, 
This is something God is sovereignly, providentially doing. It's his choice to do so. Abraham has no choice in the matter at all. He's not, he doesn't have a vote. This is God doing this. In chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him and to your descendants, Here it is, first one, I will give you this land. I will give you this land. This land is occupied by pagan nations. God says, I'm going to give it to you. Here's his gift. Genesis 13. Look at that. Genesis 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give you. And listen to this, to your descendants for a little while. It says forever. Forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants would also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Listen, we haven't had the covenant yet. It hasn't been ratified yet. But he's already promised it. I give it, I give it, I give it. Now, if I read Romans 11, right, he doesn't back up on his gifts. Okay, irrevocable. Now, let's go to the covenant. Look at chapter 15. Genesis 15. And after these things, Genesis 15, 1, And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my own house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he was accounted for righteousness. Here's Abraham's salvation right here. He believed the Lord. He believed his word. He trusted what God said. And it said he had imputed righteousness right here. This is his conversion. At this point, this is repeated in the book of Galatians, referred to also in Hebrews. This is clearly a reference to his belief in God, and through that he is saved. But look at verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now notice the question given to us in verse 8. Abraham, having believed God already that there would be more descendants than the stars of the heavens... But now he has a question. Lord, how is it that I shall know that I will inherit it? What's the it? The it is the land. In verse 7, the Lord God said, I will give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? The land. So what does God do? Listen, Abraham, just believe me. Just like I, you just believe me about the descendants being bigger than the stars of the heavens. Why can't you believe me about this? Why can't you believe me about the land? So what does God do? He ratifies this promise, this covenant with Abraham with an unbelievable way of the word covenant means to cut a covenant. He literally cuts a covenant with Abraham. And he does it unilaterally. And what that means is a bilateral covenant is both parties are involved in it. Both parties agree to keep the covenant. So if one breaks it, then the other person suffers. If the other person breaks it, the other person suffers. But this is a unilateral covenant. And it needs to be understood that that is what's going on here. Because God is not asking Abraham, listen to this, to do anything to keep it. He's not asking Abraham, Abraham, now if you will be obedient to my word, I'll make sure you keep the land. That's the Mosaic Covenant, 
And all that means is occupy the land. In this case, God's going to give Abraham the land. He's going to promise to do it. He's going to do it unilaterally. He's going to do it on his own word, according to his own name, according to his own promise. And it has literally nothing to do with the conduct of Abraham at all or any of his descendants. So verse 9, so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, and he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell on Abram, which is another point of this unilateral covenant. Abraham's not even awake when it happens. He's asleep, which is another way of saying, Abraham, you have nothing to do with this. This is me. And behold, even in Abram's sleep, horror and a great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. You know what he's talking about, right? This is Egypt. So God's already prophesying what's going to happen to his descendants. And also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with a great possessions. And they did. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it shall come to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. This is God literally passing through the cut animals. And by the way, when they did that, the point was, is that if I make this promise to you and I break my promise, then what's happened to these animals should happen to me. All right. He's ratifying the covenant. On verse 18, on that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, listen to this, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, all who occupied the land, God says, I am giving all of this to you, all of this to you, which is a big portion of that part of the Middle East. And this is a gift. Now, what is interesting is I, whenever I bought my Logos Bible software, I intentionally purchased the Reformed version of it. And there are different versions you can get. And the Reformed version is going to give you a whole boatload of commentaries that are bit toward the reform perspective. In other words, I didn't necessarily want a bunch of people telling me that the Bible's not true about this or denies the doctrine of election or denies the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ or whatever. So you get the reform perspective. But with that, you also get a lot of commentaries that are different in their, different in their view of what happens with Israel in the future. And you get a lot of allegorization of the text, especially these kind of promises. And you get a lot of spiritualization of the text. The 12 tribes are not the 12 tribes, they're the church. The land's not the land, it's something else. The rivers aren't the rivers, they're something else. Now, I read the promise to you just a second ago. I read to you the prophecy that God gave to Abram just a second ago. Do you have any problem understanding that at all? That is very, very clear, isn't it? It's very clear. There's nothing in there. I, can, I don't have to read anything into that. I don't have to make it do something other than what it simply says. God put Abraham to sleep, walked through the animals, made a covenant with himself, and told him that I'm going to give you this land, and he puts the boundaries out there. He says how far it goes. One of the commentaries of many that I have, written in 2002, said this about the text I just read to you. The phrase quote, from the river to the river, is also well put. For the promise that belongs to the posterity of the holy man, Abraham, is virtue. 
not real people, but virtue, which is placed between two flowing things. Flowing things, of course, do not make up virtue, but are the boundaries of it, in the sense that if one departs from the virtue, one encounters one of those flowing things immediately. Do you know what he's saying? That's incredible. He's saying that what Abraham was promised is virtue and that the rivers represent flowing things and that if you step outside of the land of virtue, you may encounter one of those flowing things, which are the rivers. They're the rivers, right? He goes on and says, but it is also possible, too, that the rivers represent the trials that come to virtuous persons since they are placed among people who oppress them and yet the virtuous triumph is over them. That is a bunch of hogwash. I mean, really, seriously. Who in the world gave you the authority to tell us that those flowing things were trials? You know what those flowing things are? Rivers of H2O. That's what they are. And you can find them on a map. These people that occupied that land were real people, real pagan nations. The land is literal dirt and rock and water. That's what it is. So the covenant that God made with Abraham was a unilateral covenant made with himself, not with Abraham. It would be fulfilled based upon God's promise and God's willingness to keep his name and he continues to repeat this promise all throughout the Old Testament. And let me just take you to a few of those. We don't have time to cover all of them tonight, but, and there are many, but let me take you to a few of them. Look at Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2, the word of God says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, and by my name I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them. This is Exodus 6, verse 4 now. I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land, here it is, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So here he reaffirms the covenant with Abraham. Now in Jeremiah... If you can turn there for a moment, in Jeremiah 31, and we're skipping a bunch of repeats of the covenant, by the way, in the Old Testament, but going ahead now to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made to their fathers in the day in which I took them into hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Now this is the, he's saying it's not like the Mosaic covenant. Now verse 32, the end of the verse, uh, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with them. That is the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the new covenant. This is a representation of, clearly of a salvation of Israel in the future and also would include any of us that are part of that new covenant in Christ. 
But now verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for the light of day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of the host is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then and only then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, the only way this is going to change if God stops his whole plan on the universe itself and shuts down his plan of the universe. The point of it is that's not going to happen. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, in heaven above, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I also will cast off the seed of Israel and for all they have done, for all they have done, says the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter what they do. It's not going to stop it. Verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord, for the tower of Hanel and the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill of Gareb. Then it shall turn toward Goeth, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and the fields of the brook of Kidron and the corner of the house of the gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up and thrown down anymore. These are real physical places that are referred to here by the promise of God. Ezekiel chapter 11, look at that for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 11. We're going to read fast, so hang on. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord, although I have cast them far from among the Gentiles, and although they have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit into them, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do to them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Have you noticed that in both of these instances, the land is associated with the restoration of the people of Israel spiritually? Their salvation is there, but their restoration to their land is there too. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-four: For I will take from among you, from among the nations, this is Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-four. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness of all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will take a heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And then he says in verse 28, Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 33, 36, 33, thus says the Lord God on the day that I cleanse you from all of your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all those who pass by. So they will see the lit this land was desolate and has become like the garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, ruined cities have been fortified and re-inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will do it. Verse 12 of 37, chapter 37, Ezekiel 37, 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I open I will open your graves and cause you to come out from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now, there's no reason for us to think of that land any other way than what it just said in the earlier chapters. It's the land. It's the land. He goes on and says in that same text, Then you shall know that I am the Lord, verse 13, Ezekiel 37, 13. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out from the graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your land, your own land. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-one. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. 
and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. Chapter 37, verse 25, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be in the everlasting covenant with them. And I will establish them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations will also know that I am the Lord. I sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Listen, it goes on and on and on. We could read many more. But as one author said, the heart of the contrary surrounding the nation of Israel today, and the Jews in particularly, the matter that is most frequently awakens the fervent dispute concerns the ownership and the inhabitation of the land of Palestine. That's primarily why we see what's happening right now in the Middle East. The land of Israel... A specific geographic location or region, a material territory, a piece of historic real estate generates world-shaking concern. It is indeed, as it says in the Old Testament, Jerusalem will be a stone of stumbling for the world. And it still is. Barry Horner, in his book, Future Israel, Why Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged, wrote these words, while Jews as individuals are barely tolerated in their dispersal throughout the world, it is the current dispute over the land, especially in relation to the hostile claims of the surrounding Arab nations and Arab Palestinians, that continually threatens to bring about calamity of international proportions. A Jewish Christian Reformed Baptist pastor <laughs> in Israel by the name of Baruch Maoz, M-A-O-Z, explained this, and this is important. He explained a distinctive, what he called a distinctive phenomenon about Israel and the Israelites. He said, linguistically, Israel denotes both people and the land. The land is no passive observer, a mere sphere in which Israel as a people operate. It is spoken of as altogether one with the people, so much so that it becomes liable for the people's actions. According to Leviticus 26.14 and Deuteronomy 6.12, it is also a privilege granted to the land in Leviticus 25. Israel's sin brings punishment on the land according to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 24. For God will be angry with the land, it says, because of the people's sin. Conversely, when the people are true to God, he will bless them and the land. Israel's destiny is that of the land. Whatever happens to the land happens to the people. Whatever happens to the people happens to the land. The land is a very, very serious matter concerning the very promises of God. Now, those of, who are um, of no millennial persuasion that see no future restoration of the land of Israel basically tell us that this conversion spoken of in Romans chapter 11 is just a conversion, spiritually speaking, that it's only salvific. It only has to do with them believing in Messiah and receiving forgiveness of their sins, but it literally has nothing to do with the land at all. And some argue that because the New Testament doesn't have any references to the land, that obviously it must not be that important to God when it comes to the promises referred to in Romans chapter 11. The problem with that is simply this. Whenever the New Testament was written, where were the Israelites? They were in the land. There would be no need for you to say, oh, by the way, we need to have the land. God's promised us the land. They knew the Old Testament prophets. They were already in the land. There was no need to be definitive about us keeping the land. They didn't know they were going to be thrown out of it. They didn't believe even what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about the coming destruction at all. They didn't believe that. Only until it happened. But that wasn't the end of it. God had promised whenever they are dispersed among the nations, he would bring them back to the land. 
There's a number of commentaries that talk about that very thing and try to simply say that this land is not something that should be expected to be fulfilled in the future, that it is simply to be understood as fulfilled in the church, spiritually speaking. I would differ with that because I would see the land as a promise that God gave to Israel, specifically to the fathers, unilaterally, with no indication that it had anything to do with their conduct whatsoever. It didn't matter if they obeyed or disobeyed. That was the Mosaic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant was something God said he would keep. And according to Romans chapter 11, he does not turn back on his promises. And whatever he gives is irrevocable. Quoting earlier, as I shared with you about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who early on in his ministry was pretty clear about he did not see any potential for Israel to be restored to their land, and he was pretty much... uh, a classic amillennial in that case. He was, didn't believe that there would be any fulfillment of that land physically speaking, that that didn't have anything to do with what it said in Romans chapter 11. In fact, as one author said, Martin Lloyd-Jones was even more shrill in tone when in preaching in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 32, in 1964, in 1965, he opposed a pro-Judaic premillennialism. He declared, where do you find any reference whatsoever to the land of Palestine or Israel in this section? Talking about Romans 11. Where is there any mention of the restoration of the Jews to the land? And I would agree. There's not. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean what it is when you've got the Old Testament prophets clearly saying they will be. But then a little later on, preaching during during, uh, 1964 and 65, prior to the 1967 Six-Day War, he was repetitive in this same vein, even denying any relationship of this passage in Romans 11 to the Second Coming. But as this author said, one wonders uh, if there was some adjustment in his perspective in 1980 before he died in 1981. He said in an interview with Carl Henry for Christianity Today in 1980, he said this, to me, 1967, the year that the Jews occupied all of Jerusalem was very crucial. Luke 21:24 is one of the most significant prophetic verses. Jerusalem, it reads, shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until... Key word, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in 1980, one year before he died, after 1967 and the Six-Day War and occupation of Jerusalem. He says, it seems to me that that took place, that is the end of the Gentiles, took place in 1967 something crucially important that had not occurred for 2,000 years. Luke 21, 24 is one fixed point, he says. But I am equally impressed by Romans 11, which speaks of a great spiritual return among the Jews at the end of time. While this seems to be developing, even something even more spectacular may be indicated. We sometimes tend to foreshorten the events, yet I have a feeling that we are in a period of the end. He saw more happening in his latter life in Romans 11 than he did early on in 1964 and 65. It has a tendency to do that. Um, One author said, the greatest apologetic for the Bible's truthfulness is the land of Israel. More specifically, the Jewish people occupying the land of Israel. God promised it, and I believe what the Bible says will be fulfilled. They will have their land, they will be in their land, and they will participate in the kingdom of God in many ways, differently, but also among the nations that will fill that kingdom. Let's pray together as we close, okay? Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for the reminder of your tremendous promises in Scripture. And Lord, we find great comfort in knowing that you are a God who fulfills your promises, that your gifts are irrevocable, 
And Lord, as we know, as you gave the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that even to this very day, we have Jewish people, national Israelites, who are living in this land that you gave to them. We give you praise for your fulfillment and for your faithfulness to your own promises. And we know yet, Lord, there's a future fulfillment to come when all of the land that you have given to them will be occupied by them and that you will save them and they will see their Messiah and they will believe in Jesus and trust him as their Savior and Lord. We give you praise for that great work when all Israel will be saved. But Lord, also we thank you that those gifts that you gave to them are irrevocable and also we can trust that the gifts that you give to us are irrevocable your gift of salvation, your gift of forgiveness, your gift of righteousness, your gift of love, your gift of life, the gift of your decrees and your providence in, your, in our lives, the gift of your presence that you will no longer leave us nor forsake us. We give you praise for your gifts, Lord, that you never take them back, no matter what we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.